All right, well, welcome back to our study in the book of Romans. We're in lesson 27, and today is the first part on the fourth part of the book of Romans on sovereignty. And I'm simply doing an introduction to sovereignty using Romans 8, 28 to 30. As you know, in each of the sections of the book, I've done an introduction. So if you've been here from the very beginning, you know that we introduced the book of Romans in our very first lesson, and then we did an introduction to the section on sin, chapters 3 to 5, then we did an introduction to the section on sanctification, chapter 6 to 8, and today, at the very end of chapter 8, Paul is now turning to the backstory. Uh, I've alluded to this in the past, but in the age we live in right now among movies in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of movies about superheroes. Now, I know that next year they're going to make a movie about me, but I, I can't say a lot about that. But um, it's the anti-hero, you know, so. What actors you? Brad Pitt, probably. You know, that's the best they could do, you know, this kid. Um, but there's been a lot of superhero movies, and typically what happens is then they move along in the story, and then they make a origin movie. Where did he come from, or where did she come from? The backstory, so that you understand how Spider-Man became Spider-Man, how Superman became Superman, how Wonder Woman became Wonder Woman. It gets old, right? But in those backstories, you get an idea of exactly what led up to it. What Paul is turning to right now is the backstory on justification. What's happened in the book of Romans so far is that Paul, in the arc of everything, has simply taken us through with sin and salvation and sanctification. He's explained to us how God has worked in our depravity to bring us a life. He, re he rebirthed us in regeneration, saved us, and how he's currently working in sanctification. If we just leave the book of Romans at that point, we've learned a lot. We've learned a whole lot about justification. Paul's now going to turn in chapters 8, 28... To the end of chapter 11, I think it's 35, 39, uh, 36. Let's call it 36. And he's now going to take this whole section on sovereignty. And he's going to tell the whole backstory of God's eternal plan that led up to the Garden of Eden and the fall and the atonement and all that. And so he's going to now turn here to issues like election and predestination and foreknowledge and all of the things that lead up to the story. And he's also going to mention the back of the story, which is glorification. Where is this all going? And in these chapters, he's going to introduce the themes of what's happening in the nations and history, what's happening in the whole salvation picture, why did certain people get saved? Why did certain people not get saved? What is God doing? And so God is giving us in the book of Romans a backstory that no other book of the Bible gives us in this detail. And so this is that beautiful part that if people teach on election or predestination and you start in chapter 8, you've missed the whole point that Paul has done. Unless you believe in total depravity that people cannot believe without a work of the Spirit... You're not very impressed when God does something. Because you think, well, they wanted it, or they deserved it, or, or something. But if you understand the rest of the story, then a lot of this will make sense. Okay, let's do this. Alright, so let's read the text, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God 
to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he me foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul has now turned the corner to the bigger story. What was the purpose of all this? Where are we in the story? And where is this going? This is introducing the whole topic of Ordo Salutis. Sounds like a bad guy in a future movie. You know? You don't want to fight Ordo Salutis. You know? Um, General Grievous and Ordo Salutis, yes. But this, of course, is the Latin phrase, ordo, the order of, salutis, salvation. The order of salvation. And so what Paul is going to introduce to us, and has, is five terms that are put in a row, in a chronological order for us, if you will. And that is, whom God foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. The order of salvation. You note of these five boxes, Paul's really only talked about justification for the first eight chapters. It's now the first, now he's going back to give us those first three foreknow, predestined, and called, and also glorified. Now we're going to need some definitions, and again, I want to make one more point clear. All of the introductions I do to sections don't answer all the questions. So today is not the day in the class to say, Whoa, how many people are elect? I don't know. <laughs> so today we're not going to answer all of them, but remember, as we go through each section, Paul's going to introduce this, and then the next three chapters are all about election, sovereignty. We're going to dig into the text more closely. Okay. So in our introduction, though, we have to at least define these terms that Paul is using. So we're going to define foreknowledge, predestination, election, because it's related to those, and it's really a synonym in many ways. And then we'll look at justification again and glorification. So let's look at foreknew. Um, a lot of people get trapped in the foreknowledge problem, and that is because Paul starts out and says, for those he foreknew, he predestined. And if you think foreknowledge is equivalent to God's omniscience, you'll have a problem. God's omniscience is that he knows everything. He never has a new idea. He doesn't think in sort of sections. He doesn't think about, then I'll do this, then I'll do that. God knows all things, always, for all time, as we would call it. And so he never learns anything. He also does not have a plan that unfolds. In other words, he doesn't say, I will, yeah, then I'll have to do that. God's plan is eternal. It's known to him, and all of it is laid out before him in ways that we cannot comprehend. Because we're in a time-space motif, and we have change, and we have moments. Our plans come together. We learn more. We grow in our plan. But God does not grow in his plan. There is an eternal plan, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So God's omniscience is that he knows everything always, forever, and never changes. God's foreknowledge is not the same as his omniscience. Foreknowledge is not to know something ahead of time. That's not what the word foreknow is. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean oh, he saw something and he got pre 
previous knowledge, but rather since God never looks into the time tunnel, he creates the time tunnel from which things happen. God's foreknowledge is speaking about those he foreknew personally, that is, whom he personally decided to have a relationship with before time and space. He knows the person, not their activities. It says, whom he foreknew. It does not say what he foreknew. And then secondly, as we're going to look at here in Scripture, if we're going to apply the idea of foreknowledge to the idea that God was going to make a world that he didn't know what was going to happen, and then he had to look into the world to find out what he was going to do with it, is the view of foreknowledge misunderstood. But rather, that which occurred was exactly as he planned, always, and as he knew. Uh, if foreknowledge was to be interpreted as to look in and see, then one of the verses is going to suggest to us that the father didn't know that the son was going to be the savior until he foresaw it. But it says that his son whom he foreknew. Okay, so let, let's dive in then. Let's do some definition, okay? Um, what is foreknowledge? Relating to the doctrine of election, it's the personal, relational knowledge by which God thought of certain people in a saving relationship to himself before creation. This is to be distinguished from the mere knowledge of facts about a person. The selective, Wayne House says, the selective knowledge of God that makes one an object of God's love. It is more than mere knowledge or cognition beforehand. The term focuses on God's motivation to act, relating to persons rather than what the person will or will not do. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, This man, speaking of Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Speaking of the death of, of Christ, this could not mean that God found out he was the Savior by looking into the future. But rather, foreknowledge is just as he foreknew us. Before there was a time and a space continuum, God put his affections upon us. So it is in Acts chapter 2 regarding his own son as a Savior. It was predetermined by God to send his son. And he knew his son and loved his son eternally before there was a time and space. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he's appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Again, Christ. Christ was foreknown. Again, he wasn't guest on or just, you know, he was known by the Father, and you were foreknown. The difference is that Christ could have foreknown his Father because he's eternal. But we couldn't foreknow God. So don't get again the, the misfortunate picture of this. God foreknew me, so I must have had a pre-existence. No, 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 no. It's talking about the Father can know you and decide to love you even before you exist in time and space. But it's his eternal predetermination to love you. Just as he loved his son and sent him into the time-space continuum to do something, he loved you in advance of you being created in time and space but you were eternally on the mind of God within his eternal decree that he was going to save you. And that is God's eternal plan. It didn't start now in this time space. So what is predestination? Predestination is something that you want to know before you get on a cruise. Right? 
Um, this is to completely obliterate the, the, the amazingness of foreknowledge and predestination. But obviously, the cruise line knows you in advance who the passengers are going to be. You buy a ticket, it's a different way to get in it, but you're known in advance on a list of those who are going to be allowed to be on the ship. Secondly, the ship has a predetermined place it's going. If you're getting on that ship, you're going to these locations. Uh, well, salvation is explained to us. The backstory is, if God determined to love you in eternity past, then your destiny is predetermined. You're going to get there to the end. So you cannot lose it. It's not possible to lose your faith because it was given to you as a gift. And that's what Paul is getting to and the Spirit is teaching us. So predetermination, or predestination rather. It's another term for election, but we'll nuance that in a minute, in Reformed theology generally. This is a broader term that includes not only election for believers, but also reprobation for non-believers. Now, I'm not going to try to handle that as a doctrine for two weeks when we get into Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 33. But what about it? If God chose certain people to be saved... That means he did not choose other people to be saved. Because the Bible is very clear. Everyone is not going to heaven. Now, Paul has just spent, to our thinking, eight chapters explaining nobody goes to heaven on their own merit. That's the whole basis of this conversation. If we understand that nobody's going there on their own merit, everyone's bad, then this mercy is God's sovereign choice of us as a mercy. Because we didn't deserve it. Otherwise, Paul will get into Romans 9. He'll talk about fairness. The fairness doctrine. Because there's usually two complaints. When, you begin, when Paul starts to teach this, he knows there's two great objections. The robot theory and the fairness doctrine. The robot theory is, if God's choosing people in advance, there's no free will. And if there's no free will, we're just robots. And so he's just clicking a robot on. I love you. I am now saved. I'm your special robot. So we're just robots? And then secondly, Paul deals with in chapter 9 the question of fairness. So God made people that are going to go to hell and they couldn't do anything about it, so it's not fair. Because if they, if they really had a chance, they would have chosen heaven. And so Paul is going to address, not maybe to our complete likeness, where we're like, I wish I had a whole other chapter on that. But Paul will address those questions in chapter 9. And here's how you know that you know what Paul's teaching. That at least you know what he's saying. If you get welled up inside of you those two questions of how could this be or how could fair... You're not blaming God, but you're saying, how do I address that? Then you're actually understanding what Paul's saying. Because Paul is talking about eternal choice of God to save only some. If you get that is what Paul's teaching, you're going to have to come to grips with real questions. Uh, just because we come to a place where you accept that as a doctrine, does that, that does not mean that you're cavalier about the loss of people or evangelism. In fact, Paul starts chapter 9 and 10, the two greatest chapters on election and predestination in the entire Bible. He starts both of those chapters talking about how sad he is for his brothers in the flesh. He's like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mourn within for those who are related to me in the flesh, Jewish people of my own race, who have not come to Christ. And remember, he says, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation if it would mean they could go. 
Now that's noble, but Paul is not saying he could. But what Paul is saying is, if it would save every Jewish person, I would give up my own personal salvation. So the doctrine of election, as taught by Paul, did not lead Paul to be a person who didn't care about evangelism. It, it did not lead Paul to be a person who said, I don't pray. It's not, it didn't lead Paul to say, I don't go out on mission trips. The greatest evangelism of the early church, or greatest evangelist perhaps of the early church, was the Apostle Paul, who taught the sovereignty of God. And Paul said in one of those verses, among the many that we're going to look at, Paul said, I do everything for the sake of the elect. He says, I witness, I pray, I go on these for the sake of the elect. He held those in tension. Why? Because you don't know who the elect are, right? So, so we're just beginning that journey today, together. Some of you will be on the ride going, Wee! I love this roller coaster ride. Woo! I love sovereignty. I'm a Calvinist. Some of you are like, Look, I go to this church, but I've had all the Calvinism I want to hear about. And I don't, I don't blame you either way. You know, uh, and so our our doctrine here, you'll notice in our doctrinal statement, it does not say we are Calvinist. We're not following John Calvin. There are a lot of things we disagree with about him, but we do have to talk about these doctrines because they're right here in the Bible. So whatever you do with the Word of God, um, two things: good and godly people disagree about this. Just make sure that whatever your final doctrinal statement is. It comes from the Bible. And not from the notions of, I can't believe it's not fair, I'm not good, it doesn't seem right to me. Oh yeah, that's a good starting place with God. You know, it's like, well I wouldn't have done it that way. Okay. Um, make sure that whatever you're teaching on this subject, you're dealing with the Apostle Paul. You're dealing with the text. And if you come away saying, that didn't say that, then it's based on the text, okay? So let's do that together and, and be honorable towards each other, recognizing I'm teaching our doctrinal statement of the church, as well as my own personal beliefs. They, they align on this matter. All right, let's go along on the, at the bottom of page one again. Um, H. Wayne House, we're on page one still at the bottom. H. Wayne House, regarding predestination, simply says, it relates specifically to the determination of the elect and of their conformity to the image of Christ. Your final destination is planned because you were known by God and loved by God before you ever existed in time and space. So what then is election? Election, predestination, foreknowledge are part of this whole conversation about election. Okay? And so let me define election and say this, that in Romans chapter 9, where Lord willing will be in two weeks, uh, the whole chapter is about election. Okay? So hang in there. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And also House says, that aspect of the eternal purpose of God whereby he certainly and eternally determines by means of unconditional and loving choice who will believe. This is not merely the intention of God to save all who may believe. Rather, it determines who will believe. How can these doctrines be kept 
in their proper place and yet understand a loving God, a good God, a wise God, an all-powerful God, a just God, and deal with these honestly as Christians. Um, I accept these notions. I have since I was an early Christian. Um, but that doesn't mean that over the last 40 years of being a, a minister, I haven't dug in year after year and go, is this what it's really saying? I remember as an 18-year-old came to Christ, Lord, Lord brought me to himself because I'm supposed to say that's election. And, uh, and I was working a painting job, um, and I was working with a man, a godly man from my church, and I'd never heard of any of this. And he said to me, some que- I asked some questions like, well, does God choose people? And blah, 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 I don't get it. And he just started giving me Bible verses. And the one verse he gave me was Acts 13, 48. And we're going to get there today. But in it, it says, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I was like, that's backwards from what my head says. If you believe, you get eternal life. But as many as were ordained, chosen to, appointed to eternal life, they believed. And that blew my mind as an 18-year-old. Like, So the believers are people who were appointed ahead of time? And then I started reading the scriptures more deeply. And that's how it came. All right. In Romans chapter 9, of course, says this in verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose... According to his choice, that word choice there, we'll look at in two weeks, is a kleptos, election. According to his election would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Let me read that one more time. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that it's not based on merit, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's not based on foreseen merit. It's not what people are going to do. It's not, oh, that guy's going to believe. Nobody's going to believe. There's none righteous. There's none good. There's none who seeks after God. That's what Romans 3 was all about. How does anyone get saved when no one can get saved? That's the point of chapters 9 to 11. How does God save people when no one can be saved? Um, And then what does it mean that he called? For whom he foreknew, he predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. Uh, We need to make an important distinction. The Bible talks about two kinds of call. Well, three actually, but two for our purpose. And that is external calling, or the general call, and the effectual call. Make a distinction. We are supposed to call everyone to faith in Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel. Everyone is to be called by the gospel to believe. So we never stop preaching the gospel. But God does an internal call when we do the external call. We preach and God raises people from the dead. Get the picture in your mind of Lazarus and Jesus. Lazarus, three days in the tomb, he stunk by then. right? And Jesus shows up and Jesus tells him, roll away the stone. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Evangelism is rolling away the stone. Jesus calls people back from the dead. And so our part in evangelism is we roll the stones away, we tell you, come on out, Lazarus, please come out. And then behind the scenes, that's what Paul's talking about. How do those dead people get alive? It's not our preaching, it's not our quality of our preaching, it's not our famous words, it's not, we got candles, 
you know. We got special music, just as I am, come now, you know. We are not getting people saved. But we're supposed to be faithful witnesses. God uses the foolishness of preaching to save some. We're instruments. God uses means. He could just save everybody. He could make people out of rocks into children of Abraham. He could, but he decided to use means. And he brought us along. Now that we're saved, we feel like, I've got to tell somebody. And that's what we're about. If you don't love other people, that's going to sound condemning. I don't mean... No, no, I, I don't mind being condemning if the Bible is, but I was going to be condemning for no reason. If someone who professes to know Christ does not have a burden for lost people, you have to question at the bottom whether they are truly saved. Because somewhere in your heart you're like, I can't believe I got in on this. I am a wretch. I do not, I do not deserve this. This is an incredible gift. This is amazing. It's a mercy. And when you feel that, you want somebody else to have that. Especially when you know the condemnation. Absolutely. You know it. Because you have been under the wrath of God. You've abided under the wrath of God. And in knowing that feeling, you don't want your friends, your relatives to go to hell. And that's a concern that you say, I want to preach to everyone and let God sort this out. So what does it mean to be called? It's an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which He summons people to Himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. It's the human proclamation of the gospel in which God summons them to Himself. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Not a human shepherd will come. That's right. Exactly. It's the voice of God that His people hear. And you say, that's it. Not the preaching, not the, not the preacher, whatever. Alright, so again, the general call versus the effectual call. The general call is the call of the gospel through proclamation which all persons are invited to receive Christ. The effectual call, it's a gracious work of the Spirit, whereby He causes us to embrace Christ freely. Paradox. Not a contradiction, but a paradox. How can He cause you to do something freely? We're going to be in Romans 9 in a few weeks. But again, back to the definition. It's a gracious work of the Spirit whereby He causes us to embrace Christ freely as He's offered to us in the general call of the Gospel. Such verses now make sense in light of that. Matthew 22. For many are called. But for your children, what calling is it talking about here? External call? Right, the general external call. This is not saying many were elected but few were elected. Many are called through the external preaching of the gospel. But there's only a few who are elect. If, if it was about teaching, we need better preachers, we need better tracks, we need better music, we need better gifts. We need to give a car away at our youth rally. I've probably tried all those things when I was a youth pastor, to be honest. But if it was that, if it was the quality of our presentation that made the difference, then here's the problem. Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived. They did not believe him, they killed him. If the ability to preach and the ability to speak the truth and never get the gospel wrong is going to save people, then Jesus would have saved everybody by his preaching. 
but he has the same problem you have. Uh, they don't want to hear it. They hated him and they're going to hate you. But God is going to save people through it. That's the glory. God is going to save people through our witness. Yes, ma'am? Very good. That, that is great. Tying Romans 1 in is so important to that issue of the idea, that, uh, if you didn't hear it, the idea that when people say, um, yeah, but what about all those people who never heard? That's not fair. They never heard the gospel and all that. That's why Romans 1 is so important. Everyone has sufficient light to be condemned. That is because nobody follows that light. Nobody follows their conscience perfectly. Like, I can't believe all these heathen who live around here while you're living ungodly yourself, you know. And, and yeah, there's a God, but I'm not going to follow him. And so everyone has sufficient light, and no one is going to be judged. I know you're saying this. No one is going to be judged on light they did not receive. If you never heard the gospel, you're not going to be judged on not hearing the gospel. But you'll still be without excuse because you did not pursue, because a sufficient light was given to you to pursue God and ask him, please show me the truth. And that is in creation, it's in conscience, and, and all those things. It's a good point. So, sufficient light is there. So, a person who never heard the gospel will not be judged on that basis. But they did not seek God's solution at all. So. Alright, so Matthew 24, Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Not worthy in the manner of the external calling, but the internal call. Worthy of that call. 2 Timothy 1 is beautiful for us as far as when this happened. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now again, let's not make the mistake when we read verses like this, of thinking that the events being described happened in the past, but rather they were planned in the past. This grace was given to us in eternity past. doesn't mean we received the grace, but it was planned for us, okay? Otherwise, you're always thinking, I was pre-existent and stuff happened to... No. It happened in time and space. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest. We weren't special. We hadn't gotten any special Jesus juice in us. We were, we were born sinners. But God in eternity past had already determined that this grace was going to be given to us. And then Second Peter chapter 1. Therefore, brethren, by, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Now, if you're not a believer, you should be scared by that. Because Scripture is telling you, make sure you've been called. Make sure you're elect. How do I do that? Well, that was what Romans 8 verses 1 to 27 were talking about, which is evidences that you have the Holy Spirit. Those are ways of saying, I must be one of the people that got elected. You don't know that. Because the effect is happening in me. I see the effects of the work of the Spirit. Oh, I must be one of them. That's the conclusion uh, to be drawn. But make sure... Be more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Of course, Peter has given in 2 Peter 1 a list of eight qualities that you would see in a believer's life. You know, add to your faith, virtue, add to your virtue, knowledge, etc. Alright, justified. We've already spent much time in that. I'm belaboring perhaps some points here. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God 
in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. That judicial act of God by which, on account of Christ, to whom the sinner is united by faith, he declares that sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but to be restored to his favor. That's the first eight chapters right, of the book. And finally, the beauty of this whole thing is, for whom he foreknew, he predestined, and whom he predestined, he called that whole salvation package. And who he called, he justified. Your status has changed. But then, of course, it says, in whom he justified, he glorified. It's a past tense, recognize that, of everyone. And so Paul's talking to the Romans, who are believers, first century, and all the other ones that could say, yep, he foreknew me, and he predestined me in the past, and he called me, yep, and he justified me. And I'm sitting here today. They would think then it should say, and he will glorify you. But Paul uses the past tense on this. It is so certain to happen because the other four were eternally planned that the person he foreknows and calls and all those things will be glorified. So he says, and for whom he, he, um, he justified, he also glorified, past tense, in that. All right? That's always the thing, Anne, about talking about what God sees or knows. And um, that's a good discussion that Christians have about time, like how God views time and, and those things. And I, I would just say this one thing. Yeah, is God is not only not bound by time, but He's not, he's not uh, bound by time as a construction about thinking. And that is, uh, sometimes when people say, well, you know, God doesn't think of things in time, so he sees things in this other pattern. And I'm like, well, he just knows everything. I don't know how it relates to time exactly, but he does know everything all at once. Okay, we're on page three then. Now, what about this chapter 8, 28 to 30? Again, just saying for my own protection of my own sanity... I'm coming back to these verses next week, like I usually do. I'm just introducing the topic, and then we'll break them all down through the passage, okay? But on page 3, it's the outline of just chapter 8, 28 to 30, that I'll be addressing more fully next week. But I want to show you where I'm going with this, okay? This is how I would break down these three verses. A, B, C, 3, blah, 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 to H. The proposition, the problem, the process, the people, the purpose, the plan, the product, and the progression. You know I never do that, right? Yeah, but I did this. This is so awesome. So here's what I see in this passage. The proposition. Paul starts out and says, We know. We know that God causes. We're going to talk about this more fully next week, but Paul starts out with such certainty here. In the rest of the book, he said things like, Don't you know that? And here he's saying to Christians, You know that God's in charge and that this whole thing's working out because God is causing stuff. Now, he doesn't say you know how. <laughs> right? It's a mystery often. Like Jonathan Edwards said about sovereignty and providence, he said, it seems arbitrary to the human mind. Why one person is a jogging who's in perfect health and dies of a heart attack and some guy like Dave Doyle is still alive for no reason. <laughs> Like, he's the Entenmann Donut King, and he's still alive. Why? Seems arbitrary. But yet, God is in charge. 
So Paul starts out with a proposition. We'll talk about this more fully next week. Why do we know that? How do we know that? All that. But Paul's convinced that you know that God causes all things to come together. Number two, the problem. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things? That's a problem to the mind. All things? Even your sins. Yeah, even your sins. You know, uh, a pastor that I just uh, sat under ministry for the last 12 years, um, he used to talk about don't waste your sin. Use it as a platform. Sin is bad within itself. That's right. But don't, don't waste your, your losses, your, your, your things. So the proposition that Paul starts with is, we know that God does this. We do. But the problem is applying it to all things. We know that God works all things together. And the process to work together for good. Again, next week we'll dive in more fully. I'm going to read these definitions. But I want to remind you what Paul is saying. He's not saying that everything is good. He's also not saying that God is taking every event and somehow making that event good in some mysterious cake he's baking. But Paul is talking here in the larger picture that we're going to look at is the purpose of the all things is to conform us to the image of his son. Therefore, the specific thing Paul's talking about here is that he, does, he works everything in life to conforming Christians to the image of his son. Therefore, God can take any incident and bring good out of it, the ultimate good being to be made like Christ. Not good comes out of every incident. That's not what this passage is saying. Because, for example, it's when we get down to the people in D, this isn't true for unbelievers. God isn't working everything out in the universe for good. Right, the story's like, I got a good story here. Well, that's true. That's not what this verse is saying. It's to believers only that everything that happens to us leads to conformity to the image of Christ. And that is the good that this passage is talking about and the purpose for which we were brought to Christ. Let me talk about that just for a minute. I'm going to spoil my whole week of my notes for next week. But I'm convinced that what we're talking about here, when we're talking about the image of Christ being born in us, and that everything is being used to bring us to conformity, is that the application, for example, of the nine fruits of the Spirit, uh, those fruits given to us are reflections of the character of Christ, for example, love, joy, peace, long, suffering, gentleness, goodness. Every incident in life is an opportunity to practice a Christ-like quality. Um, whatever God's thrown at you, there's an opportunity to throw love back. Uh, and if he's throwing something at you, we're like, I do not love these people. Welcome to the love train. The fruit of the Spirit now to be born in your life. If you just applied those nine fruits to any given incident and asked, what is God trying to teach me? What is God trying to bear fruit in me to be like Christ? That is what is this passage is talking about. God works all things, every event, every circumstance, every weird timing thing, to bring out an opportunity to conform you to the image of Christ. Do they all, every event, end up good? No. Not even for the Christian. Every single event doesn't end up, I am more conformed today. There are days that you're going to wake up, it's going to be a lousy day. And at the end of the day, you're going to go back to your house or whatever you're going to do, and you're like... I'm the worst Christian that ever lived. I didn't grow today. I responded terribly. When the guy cut me off on the road, I tried to cut him off too. 
Hey, killing people happens. Okay, that was too far. There are plenty of days in our life where this Romans 8, 28, 30 cannot be externally viewed as conclusive evidence uh, either way. What it does do is an incident can be used by God that we poorly respond to, that we sin in, to be the precursor of God teaching us more deeply over the course of the next month or week or year or whatever. And sometimes you do things like Bible characters, right? Uh, Bible characters mess up, like Jonah. You know, Jonah's going, hey man, I'm not going. I'm going, I'm going back to Nineveh, whatever. We've all been there. That was not a day of his sanctification. But God said, okay, we'll get you on a boat. <laughs> i got a lot of ways to get you back on the beach, man. And that's what God does. So if you take one snippet, a photograph of the whole journey, it doesn't look like Romans 8.28. If you take a video, your life is being conformed to the image of Christ because God doesn't let you live in sin village. He doesn't conform every aspect of us before we are finally conformed. But God doesn't give up on believers and just let you do whatever you want. He keeps coming back to that same thing. It could be a sin for 20 years. You're like, I'm, just, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. And God's like, we're going to get to that in His timing. So God's bigger picture, the film is Romans 8, 28 to 30. Paul is showing us the, the story in the background of what God is doing. and He's conforming us and He uses everything. Here's what the Westminster Confession says about this idea of providence, how God is working all things together for good. It says here, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. But then it gets very particular. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Let me just make that basic point. God governs his world through preservation, concurrence, and government. The three aspects of providence. And it's simply this. He makes water to be wet. Water's prod water by nature is wet. He preserves that quality of water. Now I know I'm being silly by saying it's wet. But he preserves that. Otherwise, the whole, the whole universe would just... It's upheld by the word of his power, it says in Colossians, of Christ. Upheld by the word of his power. Uh, the desks in front of you are being preserved right now in their current natural state. They're not turned into jelly or pickles or they don't disintegrate. God's providence is that whatever is by nature that thing he has created and that it is by nature, he preserves and continues it in its nature. He's not continuously doing miracles with it. God's not doing a miracle there. He preserves it in its nature. But he concurs with it as well. What does that mean? He uses water in its natural flowing path to do stuff with it. 
with that universe he's created and weather patterns which are not outside of God. They're not Mother Nature. They're all under God's control. So God uses water and with the weather patterns and everything in a fallen world. That stuff's going to happen. Winds are going to blow. Tsunamis are going to happen. God is behind everything. We're going to get into all this. How is God acting in those? But he's not doing a miracle every day in which he's creating things that would not by nature do that in a fallen, cursed world. And so God uses weather to create it. Does a tsunami get worse or better? Yes, God can do whatever he wants. He can tweak them all day long. But he also governs that nothing gets out of control. That the boundaries of the ocean, according to the book of Acts, are set. That nations are set. So God governs a world in which he has parameters. But he also uses what he created. And he also has purposes for which he's doing it. He's preserving it. He's concurring with it. That doesn't mean agreeing. He's working with it. And so this Greek word that says to work together for good is synergeo, which means synergy. He synergizes all of those things to a purpose which is exactly what he determined beforehand. He never sins, but he uses the sins of people to do his purpose. That's what he did with Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9. It is for this purpose I raised up Pharaoh. Did he make him sin? No, he's like, this guy's bad. This guy is a complete narcissist. So I'm going to use a complete narcissist to set my people free. He didn't make him more narcissistic. It did say that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? We're going to get more into this. But it doesn't mean he made him sin or he hardened him. Sounds like he made him a hard person. But rather, he judicially hardens him. If that's where you're going with this... Sovereignty is going to press you into a little bubble where you're going to act totally like that guy the whole time. Why? Because that's who you want to be. If you want to be evil and treat my people evilly, I'm going to let you have free reign. But God's making all the chess moves. He's like, Pharaoh, make your move. He knows what he's going to do. He doesn't make the move for Pharaoh. But he knows that Pharaoh's going to move a certain piece. God counters. What the world doesn't get, they get to say, I have free will, I can move my chess piece. Yep. And God can checkmate you. It's a two-player game. It's not a computer game. God always wins. But God doesn't... And church history, though, is a lot of times when you see in church history, people, the devil making moves, the world making moves, and there's a long time when you're like, when does God move? How come God's not moving? Well, He is. But not always the way we perceive it. But the final moves are all set. That's why in the, the other day on the cruise, I said to the person who said, the world's bad, you know, and everything. I said, I read the book of Revelation. You know, God wins at the end. But there's a book of Revelation. So, All right, and then again, just another Wayne Grudem. By the way, I'm not a Grudemite. Uh, I don't agree with everything Wayne Grudem says. I do quote him a lot because I think he's concise. But I say all that to say. Wayne Grudem there in the middle of page 3. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And thirdly, he directs them to fulfill his purposes, which is what I've just said. So to whom does this happen? The, the whole key here is understanding it only happens to Christians. These verses are only for Christians. 
Again, it's not a generic verse to be used to people in the world. Hey, man, it's all good. It's all going to work out good. No. No, it's not. No, it's going to be bad. Okay? But for you as a Christian, it absolutely ends up good. And you will be conformed to the image of Christ. In this world, do we all get to be the same exact sanctified view? No. To the grace that's been given to you in this life. But sufficient grace has been given to you to be conformed to the image of Christ from where you started. You know, C.S. Lewis was challenged one time uh, by, I don't remember who it was, I'd be making it up, but, um, but he was challenged in this regard like Lewis. So you're telling me that Christ changes people, and I look at your life and I don't, come on, I mean, seriously? And he said, yeah, but you didn't know me beforehand. You didn't know where I came from. Compared to what I was to here, it's a miracle. Right? 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 Compared to this other Christian who's, oh, the Apostle Paul and stuff, I'm never going to get there because I don't have that grace in this life. But God has fruit for you to bear and for me to bear that is consistent with His work in our lives. That's why we're not to look at others and compare ourselves one with another. Scripture is very clear about that because there are Christians in the room who are better Christians than we are. You're always going to meet somebody who's a better Christian than you. And you're like, well, is that the standard? No, Jesus is the standard. Therefore, I know that person's not killing it either. <laughs> you know, right? right? You know, I'm just looking at the wrong person. You know, so that's it. All right. And E, the purpose then is according to his purpose. What is the purpose? It's told in us to conform us to the image of Christ, right? And then what is the purpose? In the New Testament, we're told this a million times. Here's a few. Romans 9, as Ken says, For though the twins were not yet born, which we just read, and had not done good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Ephesians 1. Also, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 3, this was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us. This is consistent, bless you, that the purpose of our being saved is to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. So what's the plan? This whole thing. For he foreknew, he also predestined. What's the product? To be conformed to the image. And what's the progression? The five things that he's mentioned, right? That's what we'll look at a little more fully next week as we dig in deeper into that. All right. You're about to get some Doylenian theology. I literally just poured water all over myself. That was... Yeah, yeah, God's, God's like, like, hey, hey show him some Doylenian stupidity, too, while you're up there. All right, I've been sprinkled. Thank you. I was as a baby, right? As a Catholic. They do stuff to you. I told you guys I had last rites presented to me twice as a Catholic. As a baby, the first eight days of my life, twice. So my mom and dad, who were Catholics at the time, but they, they built into my thinking um, an idea that God must have a purpose for you. And they would say that to me. They would say, you died twice. I didn't really. But, you know, in their minds. I turned blue. You know, babies. They didn't have an internet to look at back then. Oh, he's fine. You know? He'll be all right. <laughs> they rushed me to the hospital. St. Anne's Hospital, Fall River, Massachusetts. Same priest. Twice gave me last rites in the same week. They're like, he's, he's going to die. You know? So, God is good. What's in his plan? Nope, I'd love to hear all of your stories, which is still coming. 
So here's some things I would say that Paul is summarizing. I'm sorry, Doyle's summarizing about where we are in the book. Stay with me, if you will. <laughs> suggesting that Paul is a little too far. I believe that all men are totally depraved. Their wills are in bondage, they're to depraved minds and depraved affections or emotions. Men's wills are free to choose anything from their minds, believe, and their affections desire. Unfortunately, the scriptures tell us that all men's minds are enemies of God and cannot be otherwise except through God's regenerative power. Also, scripture tells us that all men hate God and no one seeks after God. The net result is that while men are making free moral choices with their wills, they are only choosing off the buffet of their fallen, God-hating, non-understanding minds and affections, which will always inform the will to choose against the lordship and glory of God. Thus, all men are responsible for their choices, freely made. Against this stark backdrop of man's depravity, complete inability to remedy their condition is the glorious truth that God has planned from all eternity to show his power, justice, grace, and mercy through saving some, even though all deserve eternal punishment. Election is God's eternal plan and choice to save some for his glory. Predestination speaks of the destiny of those so chosen by God from all eternity. They are predestined to be saved and conformed to the image of Christ. God's choice to save some is based on no foreseen merit in the elect, but rather on God's sovereign choice and pleasure. And since man is unable to respond to God because of sin and depravity, God in his mercy regenerates some, thus making them alive to respond to God with their own now freed will. God's regeneration and man's response are almost simultaneous when viewed from our perspective, but it is God who moves first. Man's response is irresistibly secured by God's saving grace, which is the God-given capacity to desire and to choose Christ. All of the elect are kept by God's grace in a saving relationship and will certainly persevere unto eternal life. That's my own summary there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I should stop teaching and just read my stuff. I think it's better. Okay. So that's the summary of where I'm... So that's what I'm trying to say. Paul's brought us up to that point of we understand that but now the backstory begins to help us understand God's goodness. Hey, I want to leave us with some thoughts. These are seeds for next week. But Romans 8 is starting us in a bigger journey. It starts out with saying, how did you get saved? But by the time you get to chapter 11, it's whatever happened to Israel. And it's still about sovereignty. It's about God's controlling history. Not just your salvation. Your salvation is one part of all that God is doing in all of history. And so Romans 11 is going to take us to God's sovereignty. So I want you to think through some things, questions, relationships next week to this. And I want to lead you with these seed thoughts about God's sovereignty. Here we go. God's plan is God's predetermination of all things that occur in His creation, both events and a person's actions. All things that happen externally to God are determined by Him and are certain. But He doesn't do them all. This concept is often called God's purpose, His plan, His decree, His foreordination, or His counsel. There's only one overall plan. There isn't a plan B, right? Ephesians 3, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus. God's plan is eternal. 2 Timothy 1.9, I'm using this a lot. Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which were granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's another way of saying 
This plan has never not existed. Sometimes we think, not think, that's not even the right word, because that would be a determined idea. But it feels like, perhaps, that God somehow planned salvation. You know what I mean? Like there was a day he was like, hey, we're going to have to do something with this eternity thing. Why don't we save some people? But whatever eternity is, God has never had a time. Again, we're using words of our own. There's never been a time when God did not plan to save us and where this was the eternal plan. But then C.S. Lewis and the others and other Christians ask, so is there another part of the plan that saves other people? Are there going to be other worlds? Is God going to make other universes after this? Or with the eternal plan? Or the only eternal plan? Well, it's a good question. Um, and some have imagined that, like C.S. Lewis did, uh, and others, that, well, just because this is the eternal plan doesn't mean it's not the only eternal plan. That is, there's not a conflicting one. But Christ isn't going to come to die again. So, but... Could there be other worlds after this? I'm not getting into the real conversation. But could there be other worlds that are yet not described? Because eternity is a long time. Again, using time. What if 22 billion go gunkies into eternity and we're all like, dude, this is awesome. God says, hey, I'm going to unfold something for you. But that also could possibly take away from the real reality is the reason we're in eternal life is to know him. And that will never, we will never fill up the cup in eternity. So, just, just throwing some ideas out there. But we're not told, and by that I'm not saying there's other salvation plans or anything, but rather the question of could there be more to be revealed in the future, not about the person of God, but about his decreed plan, or is the entire decreed plan part of what we have here in Scripture? God's plan is eternal. God's plan is wise. And as a Christian, that's what Paul means when he says, you know that God causes all things. He doesn't mean he's just a reckless force you believe in, but you know that God has a plan. Psalm 104, O Lord, how many are thy works, and wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possession. Romans 11, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. God's plan is free. Isaiah chapter 40, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or, or his counselor has informed him? Uh, with whom did he consult and gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Well, we did. <laughs> right? Once he saw our awesomeness, he knew what to do. And informed him of the way of understanding. And then I say, do yourself a favor and read the rest of the chapter. God's plan is absolute and unconditional. Isaiah 46. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish most of my good pleasure. Oh. You know, I love A.W. Tozer's uh, book on the attributes of God and the sovereignty of God. Both of those are good. Many of you have read them. But in particular, I'm thinking when he talks about, I, I, I don't know what the chapter is called, but when he talks about basically God is happy. Because sometimes, as Christians, it's possible to think of, man, the world's out of control. Not out of control. We know it's going to end well. But this is such a terrible world, and God is so unhappy somehow. God is, hates sin, and He's wrath against sin. But is God happy within Himself? 
is the universe the way he intends it? It's part of his plan. We have to hold those in the tension of God doesn't want these moral things not hap- or happening. But God's plan is happening, and God is quite content within himself. He's not discontented by this. Oh, man. But this is exactly as he saw it. So, Revelation 4.11. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. He's sovereign over providing wealth, right? Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Of course, that is to Israel, not to us directly. But the point is, God is sovereign over this. He raises up kings. He puts them down. You know. Um, and then creation, of course. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. <laughs> in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. I, do, I just love that. It's so right to the point. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. But He can't do this because these people are resisting Him. No. Who can resist this? Well, Paul says in Romans 9, Who can resist his will? But then people turn that as an argument. Well, there's nothing I can do, right? A lot of the people in this room are not going to be old enough to know this reference, but Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it, right? Right, the devil made me do it. That's right. God made me do this evil stuff. That was Romans chapter 2. The Jews were saying, hey, if I'm making you famous because you had to rescue me, doesn't that give you more glory? Remember the argument in chapter 2 and 3 of the Jewish argument was, hey, if my sin makes saviors come and rescue me and you get famous for being a savior, doesn't my sin contribute to your glory? Huh? That's the warped mind of all of that. Okay, last part, just in conclusion. Sovereignty as seen in other passages will prime us for next week and forward. Psalm 115. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Proverbs 16. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Psalm 103. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 19. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Nobody is going to be raised up, including Antichrist and whoever, that is going to thwart the counsel of the Lord. That's the other, the, the eternal decree of God. Oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, and you aren't, I don't know that, but if you're a Christian and you're praying the Antichrist will not come, please stop that because you're not getting anywhere. Proverbs 21, he's coming whether you pray for it or not. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And it's a good allusion there too because Water is doing something and God is concurring with it and He turns it. He didn't create the water, but He turns it. Psalm 33. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Romans 11. What then? That which Israel is seeking for it is not obtained. So God must have failed. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. I always have a remnant, God says in Romans 11 according to grace. And then my verse that began my journey at 18 years old, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing 
and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. All right, let me pray for you guys.